Morning, everybody. Happy Easter. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm part of our preaching team and uh, delighted to be able to open God's word with you today. Uh, The first time I ever had dinner at my wife's family's house uh, back before we were married, we were in college. And uh, the first time we had that was a was kind of one of those experiences I'll never forget. We uh, come from really different family size dynamics. Uh, I'm an only child, and she's the oldest of five, right? So a lot of chaos in her home, pretty quiet around our place. And uh, went to her home for dinner, and they had ordered some pizzas, and then they had a six-pack of soda. And so I went through, and I got a couple pieces of pizza, and then I grabbed a can of soda. And then my now mother-in-law looked at me very seriously and said, excuse me, what do you think you're doing? I said, uh, I'm having dinner. I don't, like, what do you mean? And she goes, you don't get your own can. (laughs) I went, oh, yeah, like, there's eight of us here. There's six sodas. Like, in my family, I would get two, right? Like, double fisted. Like, but here, like, no, we're all sharing. We're all, you know, everyone gets a little bit. And it was kind of one of these moments where you realize, oh, wow, my sense of normal and their sense of normal is not the same thing, right? That continued as we got married. Uh, in our marriage, uh, Molly's dad had always done the finances. So we got married, and she expected that I would do the finances. And I kind of bumbled my way through that for a few months before I said, honey, you have a degree in mathematics. How about... <laughs> How about you do the finances? And so, you know, that, that happens. If you're married, you understand the kind of way that norms get together. If you hang around with other people or other families, you get a new roommate, right? You're a single person, they're a single person. You move in, you realize, like, we had a different expectation of what clean was, right? That sort of a thing. Uh, some of my friends, uh, they said when they got married, one of the things they found was that he would order, when they ordered Chinese food, he would order what he wanted and assume he could eat all of it. And his wife said, no, 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 everybody shares all the Chinese food. That's how we do it. I have another friend who, when I first was getting to know him, I was like, man, why are you always arguing with me? Like, stop arguing. I'm not even trying to argue. He goes, he goes no, no, I'm really sorry. He's like, my dad's a lawyer. That's just how we talk. <laughs> right, so, so you have a sense of what feels normal. And, and here's what I want to look at today in light of this, this story about the resurrection of Jesus. Because we could just look at that it happened, and of course that's what Matthew describes in the first part of chapter 28. But what we want to really look at is, is what are some implications of it? Like what, okay, Jesus died and rose, so what? Like what does that do? And here's the big idea today is that Jesus' resurrection mystifies norms and normalizes mystery. Jesus' resurrection mystifies norms. There's a lot of things we think are normal. There's a lot of things that just seem right to us in a fallen world. And Jesus' resurrection comes in and just mystifies all that, turns it all upside down. And there's a lot of things that seem really mysterious to us that we don't feel like we can quite understand. And Jesus' resurrection comes and says, hey, that's actually pretty normal. So that's what we're going to look at today, that Jesus' resurrection mystifies norms and normalizes mystery. First, let's look at how it mystifies norms. There's a few places in here where you see some norms turned on their head. Look at verse 4 of chapter 28. Jesus has risen from the dead. There's an angel there announcing it. And it says in verse 4, And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, most people then and most people now do not have guards at their tomb. Right? You and I will die, we'll be buried, no one will be guarding our tomb. Why were there guards? Well, because Jesus had been predicting, I'm going to die, and then three days later, I'm going to rise. And so the Roman authorities were nervous that the disciples were going to come in and steal his body and then say, ah, see, he rose from the dead. And so they actually post guards there to make sure that that doesn't happen. And uh, the, 
My guess is, I don't, I don't have any way to know this for sure, they probably didn't find the two sleepiest fellows they could find. They weren't looking for JV guards. They were probably looking for like Navy SEAL guards to like, hey, let's get a couple of our best guys out there. Right, these are the strong guys. These are the A-team guys. These are the not afraid of anything guys. That's who's gonna be there. And then verse four, they trembled and became like dead men. So one of the norms that's mystified is that when Jesus rises from the dead, the really strong become really weak. Right? All they had is their strength, and that was all they had. But Jesus' resurrection turns that upside down. All of a sudden, the strong become weak. There's another norm mystifying thing here in this story. It's in verse 6, or I'm sorry, verse 7, and then verse 10. It involves the women. The women are told strikingly similar things, once by the angel, once by Jesus himself. In verse 7, or I'm sorry, let's start in verse 6. He says, uh, the angel says to the women, he is not here for he is risen, as he said. Go, or come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. So, so go and tell, the angel says to the, to the women. Then in verse 10, they encounter Jesus himself. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So the angel says, go and tell. Jesus says, go and tell. You go, I don't get it. Why is this a big deal? Here's why it's a big deal. Because in Roman culture, in a court of law, women's testimony was considered invalid. The, the thought was, or of course, we know now, this is ridiculous. The thought was that women's testimony couldn't be trusted that they weren't reliable narrators of events. And so their testimony was inadmissible in the court of law in first century Roman culture. And so here you have these voiceless, invisible people who all of a sudden are being told by the angel and then by Jesus himself, hey, you go have a voice. You go tell. Who actually was the first people to tell the disciples, the apostles of Jesus? How did they find out? The women told them. So this is this just norm-mystifying reality of the resurrection of Jesus. The strong people all of a sudden become weak. The voiceless, overlooked people all of a sudden become important evangelists of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In all these ways, the, the resurrection of Jesus just blows up and turns on its head everything that we think of as normal, right? There's a lot of things we think are normal. Like one thing we think is normal is that this life is all there is. The resurrection comes in and says, false, <laughs> There's more than this. There's more than just this life being all there is. Because if Jesus can rise from the dead, then that means there's more than that. We also have a sense of normal. You know what? If I have enough money and I have enough power and I have enough time, it'll fix everything. And the resurrection of Jesus says, hey, all the money in the world is not going to stop you from dying, but only the power of God is going to help you to keep living forever. It feels totally normal for us to be terrified of death disease and sickness and suffering, but ultimately death. I mean, death is that thing that, that people are so, so, so afraid of. And the resurrection comes along and says, you don't need to fear that. Because if Jesus is risen, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Jesus is alive. There's another norm that the resurrection of Jesus overcomes. It's the, the norm in our culture. No one explicitly says this, but it's the message we all get. Here's, here, here's what it is. You need to define who you are. Your parents don't determine who you are. Your culture doesn't determine who you are. You need to figure out who you are. You need to think about it. You need to figure out who's the deepest person deep within there. And then you need to express it to everybody. And you need to define who you are. And the resurrection of Jesus says, no, 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 no. Jesus defines who you are. Who Jesus says is who you really are. Why, do, why does what he think matters? Well, here's why. Because if you can predict your death and your resurrection and pull it off, 
We just go with whatever you say, right? Like, like you're now the king. You're now the king of kings. You're the, you're the one whose opinion matters more than anybody else. And Jesus comes and he says, if you trust in me, then death is not your future and strength in this world is not most important. And having some sort of other identity based off your career, based off your romance, or based off your family, or based off your sexuality, or based off anything else, don't define yourself by that. Define yourself by me. In me, you're now a child of the king. See, we're all like a guy from Yuba City, California. Bill Capel is his name. He's a retired grocery store clerk who one day got a letter from the royal family in England telling him that, in fact, he was in line to become the next Earl of Essex. He knew he had some English ancestry, but he didn't really actually know the family that was there. And it turns out because someone didn't have an heir anymore, it bopped over to Bill from Yuba City. And, uh, you know, he'd never been to England. He thought, boy, this sounds kind of neat. He actually found out he was 96th in line for the throne. So there's Bill in his easy chair. And here's what I want to tell you. You and I are Bill. You're going through your day thinking, well, I'm just a mom. Well, I'm just a third grader. Well, I'm just a retiree. Well, I'm just someone who enjoys pickleball. Well, I'm just a pastor. Well, I'm just a salesman. Well, I'm just a nurse's assistant. Well, I'm just a, well, I'm just a, no, 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 no. If Jesus is alive and you're in him, then you're royalty. You're a child of the king. That's who you are. You don't need to define yourself by digging deep. No, you define yourself by looking at Jesus and saying, who does he say I am? He's the one who's risen. Another norm that that the resurrection of Jesus just totally busts open is this idea, that this is what feels normal to us, that you, know, you get what you deserve, so you better be a good person. And that's what a lot of us maybe even think, if you're not really used to church, you might think this is actually kind of what church is about. It's kind of, you know, you get together to remind yourself to like be a better person. And what I wanna tell you is, if this was all about just trying to be a better person, then Jesus' death and resurrection was for nothing. Like, what do, you, what do you need that for if it's just about your effort? But it's not about your effort. It's not about your morality. It's not about your goodness. It's about what he's done. It's that Jesus is the truly righteous one, the truly good one, the one who actually obeyed God when all of us failed. It's that Jesus, though he was sinless and though he was perfect, he went to the cross and he died as a substitution in our place so that whoever would believe in him would be reunited with the Father by faith in Christ. And then he was buried, and then he rose victorious over Satan, sin, and death. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back. And that's who he is. And if that's true, then our being like marginally better people, who cares? Like, I'm not telling you to go out and try to be a worse person. Don't get that impression. But listen, if you think, listen, if, if, if the resurrection's not true, we are wasting our time. Religion is a lousy hobby. But Jesus mystifies the norm. Look at what uh, one of the prophets of our day, Bono, here's what he had to say about this. (laughs) I love this quote. He says, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. What he's describing is here's what's normal. This is what's normal in lots of religions, lots of secular religions, everything. What you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws. Every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. 
And yet along comes this idea called grace. To upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep trouble, (laughs) is what he said. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Listen, normal is depend on your own religiosity. Jesus' resurrection mystifies that. Says, no, 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 look to Jesus. So Jesus' resurrection mystifies norms. It also normalizes mystery. There's a few pretty substantial mysteries in this text. Uh, The first one is in verse eight. The women, they interact with the angel and then they depart. And look what it says in verse eight. It says, so they departed. They departed quickly from the tomb. And notice, notice how they felt. With fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. You go, what? <laughs> Those don't sound like what I want to go together. Fear and great joy. Imagine if I came to you and said, hey, you're about to have the best day ever. There's gonna be so much that you're gonna be afraid of. You'd be like, that does not sound like the best day ever. That sounds like every day ever. <laughs> and, and yet, there's fear because they're going, holy smokes, we're caught up in something bigger than we understood. Wow, there's a God who's doing stuff that we don't fully understand. This is, this is big. We're part of some mysterious thing that's happening here. Wow, right? So there's fear, like holy cow, we're not in control. By the way, this is why some of you are not yet willing to surrender your life to Jesus. Because you go, well, I wanna feel like I'm in control. And here's what I wanna tell you. The best you can do is feel like you're in control. (laughs) But you're not in control. So you surrender to Jesus and you go, this is scary. God, I don't know. Are you going to take care of me? So there's fear. There's also great joy. Great joy. I love it in the Greek. It's a mega joy. The other place that this same phrase, great joy, shows up is in the Christmas story. It's when the angels come and they say, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Same phrase. Same word. But by the way, this shows us that Easter proved that Christmas was true. That God actually did come and God actually did live and die and rise and so, so when we trust in Jesus, yeah, there's fear because, man, we don't, we're not in charge anymore. He's the Lord. He's the master. He's the ruler. He's the king. We're not. But there's great joy because even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil because he's with us. And in his presence is fullness of joy. And so, yeah, you don't get to call the shots, but man, he's going to fill you and he's going to redeem you and he's going to walk with you and he's going to be close with you. So that's a mystery. How how do you live in that kind of tension? Here's another, I think, profoundly mysterious thing in verse 9. Jesus, right, so they're they're on their way to tell the disciples and they get interrupted by Jesus. I love Jesus said, greetings, right? Like, did he pop out from behind a rock? (laughs) But you didn't see me coming, you know, like... It says, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Why is this mysterious? Here's why. These were well-taught Jewish women who knew. You only worship Yahweh. You only worship God. You don't worship humans. You worship God. And yet what happens? They take hold of Jesus' feet. Who has feet? Humans. It's interesting to me, we all have feet. None of us are particularly proud of our feet. 
right? We try to gussy them up with a pedicure or something here and there, but they're still feet. <laughs> and there they are at his feet. Not just, not just before his feet, but actually it says they took hold of his feet. They grabbed. They were grabbing his humanity while they worshiped him as God. You go, wait, wait, wait. I don't know if I get this. So you're saying that Jesus was fully human and fully God? Yeah. Well, I don't, how do you, uh, how's that work? Mystery. There's so much we can't explain. There's so much we don't understand. There's so much that enlightenment thinking and rationalism and scientific, whatever, it just can't explain. And that's what's going on here is, is if you're going like, man, well, I, I have a lot of questions and I need answers. Great great. We, there are a lot of good answers for the questions you have. But if you're saying, I need something that is absolutely airtight, with no doubt, with no potential for wiggle, with no mystery, well, look somewhere else. Because Jesus is saying mystery is part of this thing. Like, like this world's enchanted. There's more than meets the eye. There's more than you can understand. There's more than you can easily explain. It strikes me, by the way, that all of us are so drawn to stories where there's power and mystery and wonder and magic. Why? Because maybe deep down we know that this world is more than we can see and touch and explain. And it is because Jesus rose from the dead and said, good luck explaining this. And so friends, this Easter, this is an invitation. There's an invitation for you to come and to embrace Jesus, to like these women, to fall at his feet and to worship him, to allow him to mystify what, everything that feels normal. You think this lifestyle there is? No. You think that this is about how strong you can be? No. You think this is about you know, how good you can be? No. This is about what he has done in your place. Will you trust him? Will you believe him? And will you be invited into the mystery? Will you surrender yourself? Will you yield yourself to a good and gracious, and glorious, and great God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for coming in Christmas. Thank you for living obediently. Thank you for being faithful, Lord Jesus. Faithful to everything that the Father had told you to do. Thank you for your teaching and for the way that you baffled people as you showed them the kingdom of God with signs and wonders. Lord Jesus, thank you for your substitutionary death. Thank you for bearing our sins in your body on the cross so that we could become the righteousness of God. Thank you for your resurrection and your ascension and your promise to return. And Lord, we pray now that we would be people who are filled with fear and great joy that we would be in awe of you, that we would have wonder about you, that we would yield ourselves to your good control. But God, also, would you fill us with joy? Would you fill us with hope? Would you fill us with purpose and meaning? Would you fill us with life? Lord, there is joy as we follow you, and we thank you for that. Thank you that we get to walk with you and enjoy you forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, will you stand and sing and celebrate with us?